Florida Matters is supported by WUSF members just like you. Your donation of $5 or $25 will help ensure public radio thrives. And thanks to Candy Olson, an additional $50 will be added to your donation. Visit WUSF.org slash match to maximize your gift today. Welcome to Florida Matters. I'm Bradley George. We're not ones to toot our own horns here at WUSF, but today we want to talk about one of our podcasts. We also thought it would be a nice break from the news. The Zest dives into the world of Florida food through interviews with chefs, farmers, restaurant owners, historians, and for me as a new Floridian, it's been a great way to learn about the Sunshine State. My former colleague, Robin Sussingham, hosted its first two seasons. Her producer was Delia Colon. She's a longtime journalist in the Tampa Bay region. You've probably heard her here on WUSF or seen her on WEDU-TV, where she co-hosts WEDU Arts Plus. Delia is the new host of The Zest, and its new season premiered last week. We're going to talk with Delia about that new season and get a taste of some upcoming episodes. Delia, welcome. Thank you. <laughs> For people who aren't familiar with uh, with the Zest, give me give me the elevator pitch. Give me a short description of what it's all about in in your own words. Sure. So the Zest is a Florida focused food podcast. It is the brainchild of the former executive producer and host Robin Sussingham, who was a longtime WUSF journalist. And the tagline is citrus, seafood, Spanish flavor, and Southern charm. The Zest celebrates cuisine and community in the Sunshine State. And you, you kind of sum up there kind of the, the diversity and the breadth and the depth of Florida cuisine because it's so many different things. As you move into this new season, as you move into the role of the host, what, what kind of stories are, are you telling in this season that people can expect to hear? Well, in the beginning, we focused a lot on restaurants. You know, we talked about Cuban sandwiches and went to the Columbia restaurant and and had a food demo. We did a lot of food demos in the first season. We got a tour of Burns Steakhouse, but then because of the pandemic, we were forced to pivot to all remote interviews, which also opened up some new opportunities for topics we hadn't thought about. So this season, I'm focusing more on the culture and history behind Florida food, like Florida food ways. What would the anthropologists say about us years from now? So for example, um, key lime pie. I talked to the owner of Kermit's Key West Key Lime Shop, which is arguably the most famous key lime pie shop. It's been name dropped on Jeopardy. You know, key lime pie is something we all take for granted, but how did how did it even come into being? How did key limes even arrive in the Florida Keys when they're native to Asia? We talked to everyone from award-winning chefs to a woman who has sold funnel cake at the state fair for three decades because they're all a part of Florida food culture. We'll uh, we'll get into some of those conversations uh, a little bit later, and we're going to play some some uh, some excerpts for for folks. Uh, I wonder, though, just in the time that you've worked on the show as a producer, what have you learned about Florida food and Florida food ways that that you didn't know? Oh my goodness, what haven't I learned? <laughs> I'm originally from Ohio, so. I was the girl who thought of Florida food as key lime pie and grouper sandwiches, and those are all well and good, but it's so much more than that. And there are so many 
regional differences and subcultures within Florida. There's an Amish community in Sarasota that has its own foodways. There's a tea called Yopan that's grown from a plant that Native Americans have been drinking for centuries that was recently, quote unquote, discovered by two brothers in Central Florida, and they now have a thriving tea business. Um, There's a craft beer day that was sanctioned by former Tampa Mayor Bob Buckhorn. I mean, this is really a topic that you will never run out of things to talk about. (laughs) And, you know, too, um, I mean, you're a transplant. I'm a transplant, too. And I remember when I moved down here, uh, I was having a conversation with someone and they were like, you know, Tampa, Tampa's really a foodie town now. It used to be all chain restaurants. And I thought, well, man, that kind of just it, it minimizes the the history of this place, right? Because there, there, there have been native tribes who've been here for centuries. You've got the Cuban and the Spanish communities that have been here for over a hundred years. You've got more recent uh, uh, immigrant communities in the Tampa Bay region. And of course you've got transplants and snowbirds who bring their own food traditions. How much do you think what you do in the podcast kind of, kind of breaks down and debunks those preconceived notions that a lot of people have about what a food scene is and what kind of food is around them? I hope the podcast does that. I'm trying to unearth hidden gems. That's one of my favorite questions to ask guests is what are some hidden gems? For example, I interviewed um, the blogger Ricky Lee of tastychomps.com, which is a really popular blog and got a crazy social media following. And he is of Vietnamese descent. And so he talks about the foods that he ate growing up, the restaurant that his father owned growing up, and these Orlando restaurants that are a little bit off the beaten path. In in a 30-minute conversation, he rattled off probably 30 to 40 restaurants that I'd never heard of that I now want to try that will be listed on the zestpodcast.com when that episode airs. But I hope that people do enjoy, you know, Disney and Burns Steakhouse and some of the bigger named restaurants, and we're happy to celebrate those, but also explore something different. And as you mentioned, too, like Florida is such a, and and I didn't realize this when I moved here, it's such a regional state and people have kind of pride, almost kind of a territorialism about their regions. I mean, the Tampa Bay region is very different from Central Florida, from South Florida, from North Florida, et cetera. What have been some surprises for you as in terms of exploring some of those different regional food scenes and foodways? Oh, that's such a great question. Last season, I spoke with um, the James Beard award-winning cookbook author, Tony Tipton Martin, and her research is all about African-American regional foodways. And she talked about how there are items we consider luxury items, shrimp, for instance, that were commonplace for coastal Black Floridians because they were easy to access. She talked about why so many different types of quick breads developed. You know, you've got blueberry muffins because there were blueberries. Just basic things like that that we take for granted um, have been really interesting to find out. Every person I talk to makes me want to do a deep dive. (laughs) Well, speaking of that, uh, the episode that you've got coming up uh, this week, it's the second episode in this season. Uh, It's about Zora Neale Hurston, who people uh, probably know as as an author and as an anthropologist. Uh, she grew up in Eatonville in Orange County, which was uh, one of the first all-Black uh, communities in the U.S. And uh, you spoke with uh, Dr. Fred Opie, who's written a book about uh, Zora Neale Hurston and particularly 
uh, her relationship with food and how food played a role in, in, in her work. What did you learn about her and the foodways that she grew up with in Eatonville? Well, this conversation with Dr. Opie is one of my favorites of the season because I learned so much. I talked to him for over an hour, which don't worry, I cut it down in the edit, but it was, it was difficult because I found it all so fascinating. So Zora Neale Hurston was a writer and anthropologist in central Florida and also a big part of the Harlem Renaissance, you know, a century ago. And she documented what we would consider to be everyday life. So the modern equivalent would be someone documenting the way people order their groceries through an app or use DoorDash, you know, just things that people do all the time and take for granted. I didn't realize that in her day, a pit master was one of the most respected roles that a Black person could have. And Dr. Opie describes a photo from, you know, early 20th century Florida in which everyone in the photo is white except for the pit master, and he's the guy in charge. He's the guy calling the shots. He also told me how a pig's foot was considered a special gift to give when a man was courting a woman. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) And the more pig's feet, the more he was really trying to to woo that lady. And these are things that come up in Zora Neale Hurston's works. So the book by Fred Opie is in part about the food ways of her time and her community. But it's also about the role that food plays in works like Their Eyes Were Watching God. So if you're like me, you probably read that novel in high school. And a lot of the references just went right over your head. Well, he's breaking down and giving a behind the scenes look at what some of those things meant. And uh, here's a little uh, excerpt of that conversation. We could never cover all of her works, but just maybe some that stand out to you. What role did food play in her life and in some of her work? So what's interesting about Zor and a, a lot of folks that I have studied. So I've been teaching this course called Food in the African-American Canon. I've been teaching this course maybe five years now. And the books that are in the course, I'll give you some of them, Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison, The Autobiography of an Ex-Colored Man by James Weldon Johnson, who I mentioned earlier. You have uh, The Autobiography of Malcolm X. You have Zorno Hurston's Her Eyes Are Watching God. Just, just a number of books. Frederick Douglass's Autobiography. And the theme that comes out in Zora, as it does with the rest of the books I used in this class, is that folks who were starving artists, as it were, starving creatives, food organically, forget, pardon the pun, but I can't say it any other way, but food organically works their way into what they publish and what they write about. Um, I, I One time, I was a, a very desperate college student, more out of pride, not wanting to call back home and ask for help more than anything else. But I remember those times of studying and writing and not having a lot to eat. And it definitely works its way into, you know, the kind of research and writing I do. And you see it in her work. So throughout Their Eyes Were Watching God, there are these food tropes that are out there and these stories that she collects from, you know, many of the, the black workers that are in the Everglades or, workers who are on these uh, plantations throughout Florida. It's just, it's just in there, even in the letters that she's writing back to um, her white supporters in New York, 
the letters are talking about her struggles. She's asking for money. She's she's uh, talks about the garden that she's keeping, a subsistence garden to keep food in her stomach. Um, she had this stomach problem that she struggled with throughout her life that she mentions. Even when she's collecting some of the folklore, she's collecting information on what I call food pharmacies, one of the chapters I have in the book, and where she's studying these African-American elders who have a knowledge of herbs and medicine, and she's studying them. But in many ways, I think this is a way for her to find a less expensive way for her to deal with her own uh, stomach infirmities. So it's, it's, it's throughout her work. And one of, you know, so I mentioned their eyes are watching God, but she also published her own autobiography. And I would encourage your listeners to get it. It covers from A to Z. It covers her time, not only here in the United States as a WPA worker, but research she did over in Jamaica, in Haiti, and a lot of the work that she did as a researcher over in Honduras. So it's it's a vast array of information that covers the time of her work, which is roughly the 1920s through the 1940s. Oh, wow. Lots of good stuff to dive into there. I'm flipping through the book and you have tons of photos, which are absolutely beautiful. And also recipes. Some of these recipes, the ingredient list is like four words. And then the the procedure is, you know, another 300 words. So like on page 18, you have the collard green recipe. The ingredients are collard greens and bacon. On page 21, you have a recipe for current preserves. The ingredients are currants and sugar. And then you go into a lot of detail about the technique. So why were the recipes so simple, just ingredient wise? And what does that say about, you know, the time period and also the technique? Because if you're only using two ingredients, there's no room for error. Great question. First of all, it speaks to a couple different things that, you know, when you're talking about recipes, 1910, 1920s, what I did was based on the experience of my first book, Hagenheim, and it came out in 2008. When I, and I went, when I was on book tours, people would ask me some really interesting questions during the Q&A, and one of them was, where are the recipes? And I didn't realize that a lot of the people who were reading my work were people who just love to cook, chefs or wannabe chefs, and just want to know more about it. So I, I learned a valuable lesson with that first book, that uh, every book after that, has included recipes, but I also found that recipes like images is a way of opening up the person you're studying or the time period you're studying or the region you're studying. It just gives you, it's a window into so many different things. And so one of the things that the simplistic recipes is a window into is that a lot of people were not literate, uh, particularly historically in the African-American community and working class communities. You, you weren't a lot of people that were literate. So you would have basic recipes, but also most kids, particularly female women, were acculturated to your job was to learn how to cook, to spend time supporting your elders in the kitchen. And they would teach you how to measure things by how much was in your hand or how, you know, how long um, your finger was and you cut it this size or you had that much in there. So a lot of these things were oral histories passed down. And then later put into recipe formats. So that's uh, Dr. Fred Opie talking about uh, his uh, writing and research into Zora Neale Hurston and uh, how the food ways that she grew up with and studied as an anthropologist informed her work. Anything else about that interview uh, uh, you'd like to say? Anything else that, that you learned that, that stood out to you? 
at one point, she wrote up a plan to open a restaurant as a way of providing an income for herself. Wow. Yeah. Did that ever come to fruition? I don't think it did, but she would often send people a cake if she offended them in any way as a, a peace <laughs> offering. I'm like, please offend me. I would love to have a coconut cake. You're listening to Florida Matters. I'm Bradley George, and we're talking with Delia Cologne, host of WUSF's podcast, The Zest. Our conversation continues in just a moment. This is Florida Matters on WUSF 89.7. I'm Bradley George. Today I'm talking to my WUSF colleague, Delia Cologne. She's the new host of our podcast, The Zest, which explores the intersection of food and Florida. So you mentioned you, you mentioned the, the Yopon tea earlier and actually had a question about that because one of the other things you try to do in the podcast is, is explore food trends and what's behind them. And Yopon tea, which is something that Native Americans have, have drank for centuries, that is something that's, that's getting a lot of buzz right now. And you talk to these two brothers in uh, Volusia County who have started uh, a Yopon tea company. What motivated them to do that? Their names are Brian and Kyle White, and they basically found this plant in their neighborhood and out of curiosity decided to boil it, which is something that takes a lot of bravery because how do you know it's not going to kill you, right? Right, right. (laughs) But it didn't kill them. They did a lot of research and now they have this thriving tea company that is considered an alternative to coffee because it's caffeinated but you supposedly won't get the jitters from it. And it is a plant that's native to Florida, which is pretty cool. We think of tea as always coming from Asia, but that's not necessarily true. And so their business is called Yopan Brothers American Tea Company. And part of the proceeds benefit some Native American groups, including a group that was founded by Sean Sherman, who goes by The Sioux Chef, S-I-O-U-X. And Robin Sussingham interviewed him in a previous episode of The Zest. So it's kind of like a full circle moment. How did you find out about that tea company? I think I was just Googling. How do we find out anything? You're a journalist. Hey, that's you how know. I find stories sometimes. So, <laughs> right? you know, Google, it works. Yes. And, and I mentioned Ricky Lee earlier, the blogger from Tasty Chomps in Orlando. I was looking up Orlando restaurants and stumbled upon his blog. I just wanted to see what was out there because... We've done some stories on craft beer, including an interview with Donnie Gallagher of the podcast Craft Brews and Geek News, um, which I love the name of that podcast. And then I've done some wine stories. And I thought, what other what other drinks are out there? <laughs> what, right. what else do people drink? <laughs> Tea, of course. Well, you mentioned wine, and that actually gets to a, uh, one of the other excerpts that we the, that we want to play uh, here on Florida Matters. One of the interviews you did this season is with Judith Smelser, and I, I've actually known Judith for a long time because she, uh, in her previous career, was a was a public radio news director and editor, and uh, traveled around the country doing trainings at newsrooms and things. But she's kind of developed a second career as a wine expert. She's had a wine blog for several years, but this year. Um, she started a podcast that looks at the challenges facing wine businesses during the pandemic. What motivated her to do that? Her friends in the wine community. She just wanted to document this moment in history. Um, I think the bars have gotten a lot of attention, but what people may not realize is that wine bars have been lumped in with 
bar bars. So if I, if I tell you to close your eyes and picture a wine bar, you're probably picturing, you know, a, a couple sipping a sophisticated glass of wine and there's a piano player. If I tell you to close your eyes and picture just a bar, totally different vibe, right? You think of maybe something in Ebor, but for the purposes of the pandemic, these two types of bars were lumped together. When a, a wine bar is really more akin to a restaurant, which were allowed to remain open during the pandemic. So wine bars had to get really creative. And I'm not a wine aficionado by any means, but I found it fascinating to learn some of the things they tried in order to stay in business. So yeah, let's hear a little bit of that conversation with Judith Smelser. You mentioned earlier that some of these wine bars got creative so that they could remain open. Do you have any examples? Oh my gosh. So let's just be clear. They, they didn't get creative so that they could remain open. And I should also be clear to say that they were never forced to close. They were only forced to stop serving on site. That's really a key distinction because otherwise I think they probably would all have gone under. They were still allowed to sell to go and to sell retail. And a lot of them did turn that into some really interesting little workarounds and creative ways of continuing to engage their customer base. A lot of folks started holding wine tastings on Zoom. Like everything went to Zoom, right? Well, so did wine tastings. Really one of the coolest ones, I think, was there's a wine bar here called Swirlery, and it's owned by a woman, Melissa McAvoy, who's a level three advanced sommelier. She's studying for her master som exam right now. And she got together with another local sommelier um, who used to work for Darden Restaurants, actually. And they uh, organized a series of weekly Zoom tastings where what they did, and they, they were blind tastings. So what they did was they took six bottles of wine, broke them down into little mini, they bought these little mini glass bottles, unmarked, only marked by numbers. You would register for this for this tasting. You would get this pack of six little mini bottles of six different wines, and then you'd get on Zoom, and each week they had a different master sommelier as a guest, and the three of them would go through and blind taste the wines while you could blind taste the wines along with them at home. This was a ton of fun, for one thing, great way to pass the time during quarantine, but also it allowed many, many people in our area who were studying and are studying for various levels of, of uh, qualification to taste with master psalms, which is in the wine community, a huge deal, right? You don't really get to taste with master psalms on a regular basis. And this was allowing folks, whoever wanted to, to be able to do that on a weekly basis. And they've, they've continued that, not on a weekly basis, but they're still rolling along with it. So that was one really neat thing. So that's Judith Smelser, who is a is a wine expert blogger and, and has started this podcast that looks at some of the issues facing wine businesses uh, during the pandemic. So... In, in the time that you've been doing the podcast, what kind of feedback have you gotten from, from your audience? And I'm particularly curious uh, if you have listeners in other parts of the country or even in other parts of the world. We actually do. So when I go into our system that we use to upload episodes, there are, there's a map in there and there are little dots all over the world. And that's the audience. So there's a dot in Australia, which I think is a friend of mine, but maybe not. You know, there's a dot in Cleveland, which might be my mom, but there are dots 
all over the United States, South America, Africa, Asia, Europe. So it's pretty exciting. But then when I stop and think about it, it makes sense. I've done a, I've done a lot of freelance writing and video production for Visit Florida, which is the state's tourism marketing agency that you know invites people to come to Florida. And from that, I have learned that Florida is on everyone's mind oh, yeah. all the time. So even if you haven't been here in years, even if you never come here, I want you to feel like you had a little slice of Florida. And some of the other podcasts that were inspiration for The Zest are Good Food, which is a Los Angeles-centric podcast, and they talk a lot about um, the farmer's market there and what's in season and, and taco trucks. You know, it has a really L.A. feel to it. Another one is Gravy, which is all about Southern foodways and, you know, biscuits and gravy and all that good stuff. And when I listen to those podcasts, I feel like I took a little vacation to L.A. or to you know, Alabama for that hour. And that's how I want people to feel when they listen to the Zest. Have you gotten any, any ideas for shows or stories from, from listeners? It's fun to get feedback. We just had Wendy Wesley, a nutritionist in St. Petersburg on the first show of the new year. And she gave 14 tips for cooking faster at home. And because she says, if you want to get healthy, then you've got to stop eating so much restaurant food and cook more at home. And if you do it faster, then it won't be such a burden. And she gave all these tips. And one of them was to leave your cutting board out on the countertop because things that go on the cutting board are usually fresh, right? You're not putting Doritos on the cutting board. You're putting fresh fruits and vegetables. Or if you are, that's your business. But um, I got an email a few hours after the episode dropped from this listener who said, I disagree with this tip because that creates clutter in the kitchen, you know, and we kind of went back and forth. So I don't know that I've gotten any direct episode ideas from listeners, but it's always nice to be thinking about how personal food is for people. You know, some people love steak. Some people are vegan. Some people love leaving their cutting board out on the counter. And some people think it creates too much clutter. So um, I didn't realize how personal food was until I got involved with this podcast. I think when I watch the Super Bowl, I'm going to put some uh, Doritos out on my cutting board. Like <laughs> just a nice chop them to... up. Have you yeah, heard of walking tacos? <laughs> Have you ever had walking tacos? It's yeah, like you I... get a little bag of chips and you right. put all the taco fixings in the bag and just walk yeah. around. So that I've also be... heard that called Frito pie, I think. Frito pie. You know what? That brings up another interesting realization, which is that food has different names in yep. different regions, Yep. which I guess occurred to me on some level, but I was talking to this woman, Jane Harris, they call her mama Jane. And she's like the queen of funnel cakes at the Florida state fair. She's up in Pensacola, but she travels around to fairs all over the United States and Canada. And she talked about how if you go to this part of the country, you don't want to call it an elephant ear because if people see that on the sign, they won't know what it is and they won't stop. And if you go to this part, you got to call it something else. And I had never thought about that. But if you're walking through the midway at the fair, you need a sign that's going to grab your attention. And so it's really cool to talk to people like her who have this expertise that's often overlooked. Yeah. And then you think about a place like Florida where everybody, almost everybody's from somewhere else. <laughs> yep. And then all those different regional names are going to are, are just going to kind of kind of live side by side here. Yeah, that's true. It's a big mishmash, as um, the chef Michelle Bernstein called it. She said her life is a mishmash and Florida is kind of a mishmash, too. 
Uh, well, this has been a fun conversation. Uh, thank you so much. And uh, best of luck with the, with the zest this season. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I want to remind your listeners that this is season three. So we have several years worth of archives that you can always go back to, which is the great thing about a podcast. And a lot of those conversations are as relevant today as they were when we first recorded them. That was Dalia Cologne, host of the WUSF podcast, The Zest. A new season just started, and you can listen wherever you get your podcasts. That's our show for this week. Denora Prevost is our producer. I'm Bradley George. Thanks for listening to Florida Matters. I hope you'll join us again next week.